Man in the Window contains depictions of sexual violence and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. Almost a thousand people are crowded in the junior high auditorium in Foothill Farms, a small town north of Rancho Cordova. Six days earlier, the East Area Rapist broke into a family home not far from here and attacked a woman and a man while their children slept. The meeting is standing room only, and a quick glance shows that most of the audience are women. On stage is Detective Carol Daly, a tall, slender woman with wide-set eyes and red hair with bangs frosted in front. She's one of three primary investigators assigned to the East Area Rape Case for the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department. And Daly is the department's public face. This man is considered to have an extremely violent potential. The massive audience hangs silently on Daly's words. It's a trust she works to cultivate, down to her carefully styled hair, one of several wigs she uses. She keeps these wigs at the ready in case she gets a call to go to the scene of a rape. Daly says she found that traumatized women appreciate talking to someone who cares enough to look put together even at 4 a.m. In this public meeting, Daly assures the crowd there are ways to keep the rapist away. There has never been an attack where we've had a regular watchdog either inside the house or out in the yard. And she has other advice. Now, one of the big questions that was asked here last night, if we have a gun, could we shoot him? Daly looks out over the packed hall. Knowing what I know about this man, if I had a gun, I definitely would shoot him. And I would not shoot to injure, I would shoot to take care of him. A female detective is unusual in 1976. Daly is one of just two in Sacramento County. She started out as a secretary before rising through the ranks. By this time, the number of victims is rising rapidly. In the space of just a year and a half, there have been 25 attacks. And Carol Daly has interviewed most of the victims. Nearly a year earlier, Jane Carson found some comfort sharing her experience with Daly. And of course, I was just in uh, psychological shock. And then when I, two males showed up, I really didn't feel like recounting what had just happened to me. But then my angel, Carol Daly, showed up. And oh my goodness, I was just so happy to be able to speak with her. Daly will be a comfort to Jane, but eventually she'll need to face this trauma directly on her own. Jane keeps in touch with the detective and a few months later agrees to be interviewed in Daly's small office at the sheriff's headquarters. The interview is for a TV segment called Fight or Submit. The best way to stop a rapist is to put him out of commission. That's the topic we'll explore in our report tomorrow. To protect her identity, she's filmed from behind, the camera focused on her swept-up hair and her gold hoop earrings. Jane fingers a thin gold chain around her neck as she talks. She tells the interviewer, learning how to fight back has its place. But um, when you're lying in bed and someone sticks a knife in your throat, uh, I'm glad to be here and, you know, to be alive to tell about it and not necessarily be a dead hero. Jane's answers drip from how to survive rape to why men rape. 
I think even Playboy and magazines like this are continually degrading females. And um, now that uh, the women's libis have started this movement trying to put women on an equal level with men, I think a lot of men are rebelling. These kinds of theories are actually fairly common at the time, not least in conservative Sacramento. Jane's comments to the reporter are polite, contained, but inside, there's a mounting rage. How should I say this? If I was in shock about what had happened to me, fear was one of my major emotions, but also I was so um, angry. You know, I wanted to, to find him and kill him. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondering, I'm Paige St. John. This is Man in the Window. This is Episode 3, The Price of Silence. Jane Carson was the Air Force Reserve flight nurse who'd been raped one morning after her husband, a pilot, left for work. Jane's been taking night school classes, and she pushes on. At a private party, the other Air Force wives gossip about the latest wild rumors about the rapist. They have no idea Jane is among his victims. She doesn't say a word. I thought, hey, I can handle this. You know, I'm strong. I'm a nurse. I'm in the military. For four months, Jane Carson struggles to get through her pain alone. I didn't tell anyone that I had been raped except one girlfriend. Because you just didn't talk about that. I mean, it was, it was such a, a, a shameful event. But it takes a toll on her. I had a tough time. I was losing weight, gaining weight, biting my fingernails. Finally, she realizes, tough as she is, going it alone isn't working. She heads to downtown Sacramento to a feminist bookstore. And in the storefront, there are racks of pamphlets and feminist tracts. Radical posters are plastered on the walls. But in the back room, volunteers field hotline calls at a small office table. This ad hoc operation is Sacramento's first rape crisis center. I didn't feel so alone anymore, so I realized I wasn't going crazy, that my emotions were just like theirs. And then, too, I met other women that had been raped by him. Women also attacked by the East Area Rapist. Yes, but I was so ready to just sit with someone and say, hey, you know, this is what's happened to me, and I think I'm going crazy. For the first time, Jane can share the details of her attack with women who were attacked by the same man. While the women at the rape center offer victims comfort, they also strongly believe in self-defense. They hold public demonstrations on how to fight off an attacker at the local high schools and even at night on a busy downtown sidewalk. Jane, grab his groin. 
But by this time, the sheriff's department is telling women to do the opposite. It's my recommendation to you that if you should ever, hopefully not, but ever have to be a victim of this man, that you do exactly as he tells you. Don't fight, just survive. In fact, there's growing tension between the newly established rape center and Sheriff Lowe. The women running the rape center want more transparency from the department. But the sheriff? The sheriff's department won't talk about the latest rape on camera. Any publicity just causes panic. The only way they're going to catch him is if he strikes again. As the months go on, the conflict escalates playing out on the nightly news. The women who have called us on the phone want to know. I mean, they are desperate to know, but they seem to be rather angry with the sheriff's department. Sheriff Duane Lowe looms large in Sacramento's conservative politics. Known for railing against California's permissive society and liberal judges, when the East Area Rapist becomes a public concern, the sheriff quickly blames pornography. Happened in Tulare County uh, this past year where a rapist similar to uh, the East Area Rapist was apprehended. He admitted that prior to each of the rapes in which he committed, he had attended a hardcore movie. And as a matter of fact, he took the hardcore pornographic magazines into the victim's home with him. Now, Lowe retaliates against the crisis center. He claims they tell rape victims not to talk to cops. He publicly calls the counselors turkeys. And his detectives tell the press the rape counselors are anti-police, anti-male, and lesbian. And he convinces the state to cut off funding to the struggling center. The women respond by taking the fight right to the sheriff's door. A group of women march against the sheriff, carrying protest signs like fight back. We believe that rapes cannot continue the way they have and that we don't want to stand intimidated. They demand that the county spend money on their safety, install streetlights, and pay for a modern 911 emergency call service. And the marches spill over to the lawn of the state capitol. Protesters spread out under the canopy of oaks. The demonstrators want longer prison sentences for rapists. One of the main reasons that I've organized this rally is I see rape as a violent crime, and it's not being treated that way in the courts. Today in California, there's no statute of limitations on rape, and habitual sex offenders can be locked away for life. But at the time of the East Area Rapist, rape isn't considered a great bodily harm in California. Judges have broad leeway in sentencing. Most rapists spend less than a year in jail or walk on probation. It's not unheard of for a serial attacker to spend only five years behind bars and return to attacking women. The rapists, you know, don't really fear getting locked up on a first offense, and I would like to see that change. And the demonstrators get their way. For years, judges have opposed mandatory sentences for rape, blocking previous efforts to get changes passed. But amid the public outcry over a serial rapist who is terrorizing the Capitol itself, the legislature overwhelmingly approves mandatory three-year prison sentences. For the victims of the East Area Rapist, that will be little comfort. 
The list of victims grows without any apparent pattern in who he selects. Women in their 30s, girls as young as 13. They share just one common trait. They're raped in the supposed safety of their homes. Chris McFarlane is 15 years old and at a crossroad in life. She's a devout Christian. Her faith, not only her core belief, but her daily practice, Bible study, church camp, private school. But as she leaves eighth grade, she decides to enter the larger secular world. You know, I'm ready for my next challenge. Whatever you have for me, you know, I'm ready for it. She decides to attend public high school in Rancho Cordova. The night of the Christmas dance, Chris is home with a sore throat. Her parents go out to a party, and her best friend comes over. But a little bit later, her mom called her and told her she had to come home to make cookies for Christmas. Chris is left alone. It's dark outside. She pops a frozen pizza into the oven and walks to the living room to the piano and begins to play. And I heard noises, but I dismissed them. I heard noise like something was being torn. Like a towel. And then at the piano, next to me, there was a man with a knife. And the knife was at my throat and it was pressing hard. Chris thinks if she coughs, the knife at her throat will pierce her. And at the same time, the man was telling me to shut up. He was going to kill me if I made a noise. And I remember thinking, Jesus, here I come. In the utility room of her home, the man binds Chris's hands with strips of torn up cloth. He says he's seen her at her new school. And I sure looked good. He steers her out of the house. He's pushing me through the garden on the stepping stones, and I fell down. He helps her up. She's surprised that he asks her if she's okay. And that's when her blindfold slips. And I, I remember just fear. I motioned to him that this had happened, and he asked if I'd seen him. And I shook my head, no. <clears throat> and he, he put it back on, and I kept my eyes shut. And he said if I'd seen him, he would kill me. At the picnic table in the backyard, he gags and blindfolds her and cuts off her clothes, and he leaves her there. He told me he'd check on me every 10 seconds, and if I moved, he would kill me. The night is just above freezing. Chris shivers as she listens to him inside the house. He's in the kitchen, cursing as he rummages through the drawers. And then... He comes back for her. Over the next hour, he takes her into the house three times. Each time, he rapes her and then returns her to the patio. After the third time, Chris is left bound and gagged on the living room floor. She waits in the long silence until she thinks it's safe. So I moved. But he was there, and he was on me telling me to stay still or he'd kill me. He was watching me. She lies there, motionless, and tries again. 
And he was still there hissing in my ear for me not to move again, or he'd put the knife through me. So I did the best I could do. And I remember singing Jesus loves me in my head to pass the time away. And it was quiet so long. For Chris, there comes a point when the torture of waiting, of not knowing, becomes too much. But I couldn't do it anymore. It, it was worth taking the chance. She struggles to her feet, heart thumping, and hops to the telephone. Afterwards, Chris McFarlane's family members all deal with the attack in their own way. Her father, a former Marine, is angry. Her mother, a quiet homemaker, is withdrawn. And there's a new family rule, a code of silence that begins with the wordless ride to the hospital and back home. You know, after the rape, from a 15-year-old's perspective, I watched everybody's reactions. And for the most part, it was about how they were handling it. If no one talks about it, I don't talk about it. We did not talk about it. We never talked about it on the way back. That's Chris's older sister, Robin. The next day, Robin calls in sick to work, and her dad gives her an order. Don't say what happened. Don't say becomes the family rule. Their father will change their phone number. He'll move the family to another town. But he'll never talk about the rape. In the days that follow, Chris feels isolated and lost. The very next day, I went to church camp. I am sure that I said I wanted to go. I'm sure I just wanted to get the hell out of there. Her understanding of the world is shaken, and so is her faith. She always prayed to God for a challenge. Why didn't he keep her safe? And I, I think I felt, well, I know I felt very angry. That is not going to be a part of my prayer ever. And how about I just don't pray anymore? Because nothing good came out of that. She returns to her private Christian school, but that doesn't work. My ride to Victory Christian would no longer take me to school. She said I had a behavior problem. She refuses to wear the dress she's supposed to wear or take off her coat. And her first anxiety attack is at church camp. She feels trapped in her nightmare, cut off from everyone else. She returns to public school and rides the bus to her third new high school in two years. She just sits, staring. Looking outside the bus window, about being raped. I was really lonely. I ate lunch by myself every day. And Chris briefly tries other ways to numb her feelings. Found drugs and alcohol, smoked pot, dropped some acid, ate mushrooms. The drugs don't help, and Chris quickly abandons them. But she can't escape this feeling she needs to flee. She's in constant motion. The rape doesn't make her fearful. It makes her reckless. She doesn't lock doors or close curtains. She accepts rides from strangers. A friend throws a party, and Chris goes into the back room with a boy. Partying helped. Numb became a way of life. Not a great survival story, right? Then, one evening in May 1977, she's watching the news. 
a police officer sharing a message from the East Area Rapist. Tell the pigs that, uh, that I'm going to kill two people tonight. And all the panic and fear rushes back. The night before, in the Sacramento suburb of Carmichael, the East Area Rapist entered a large stucco ranch house that backs up to the American River. Five people are asleep inside, a married couple with two boys and a grandfather. They've attended the public safety briefings and taken all the precautions. But the rapist cut the phone line, turned off the outdoor lights. The family dog outside made no noise. He surprised the sleeping couple in bed and whispered between clenched teeth, wake up, wake up, I've got a gun. He threw shoelaces at the woman and ordered her to tie up her husband, and then he bound her. He put a coin bank, a saucer, and a bowl on the man's back. He said, if I hear these dishes fall or any noise, I'll kill your wife. I'll kill everything in the house, and then I'll leave in the night. He took the woman to the family room and raped her repeatedly, and then he went into the kitchen to grab beer and crackers. He told the female victim, in effect, that uh, if he saw anything in the newspapers or on television or heard on the radio, he would kill, uh, kill two people tonight. He then later told her that uh, he wanted the pigs to know it. His instructions to the man were the opposite. Then he later told the husband that uh, if he did not see large headlines in the papers, he was going to kill two people tonight. In the living room of their home, Chris and Robin watched the television report about the attack in horror. And Chris believes the rapist is coming back for her. We all knew what was going on that night for sure. Yes. Yeah, I knew he was coming back to my house. And I'm in her room, and I'm just begging her, like, we've got to go to a motel, we have to get out of here. As the girls try to sneak out of the house, they stumble on their father on the living room couch. My dad was asleep with a gun on his chest, and that scared us more, so we ran back to the room and just stayed awake all night. This sort of terror is the East Area Rapist's newest game. That same month, Sheriff's Inspector Richard Shelby is at home in Rancho Cordova, a low-roofed tract house much like the rest. He and his wife are in bed when their four-year-old son comes in. He came in that night, woke us up. He was really scared. I was waking up and noticed that. Shelby figures the child's had a bad dream. He returns to sleep, his son snuggled between him and his wife. In the morning, he tells us that he, that, uh, he saw somebody hanging upside down, and he's wearing a knit cap. The boy was woken by a prowler. He says he heard the guy on the roof. He's all, making all kinds of noise. Peering through his window from above. And there's upside down and shine the light through the, through the room once. The beam of light sweeps the room and the boy runs. For years, Shelby's son won't sleep without a light on. He'll be haunted by the man in the window. It was intentional, malicious, malevolent behavior to hurt people and terrorize as much as he could. He is pure evil. The midnight visit to Shelby's home isn't the only game the rapist plays with police. He travels miles outside of his usual prowling grounds to assault a teenage babysitter, blocks, 
from the home of Detective Carol Daly. It was just his way of saying again, ha ha, you don't know who I am, I could kill you. Oh yeah, he, he thought he was much smarter than everybody. Police think he even selects a victim because she has the same unusual last name as the Sacramento crime scene investigator assigned to the case. He knew all of the mental games. He, he knew all the mind games to play. And he leaves a calling card in that victim's yard, a state law enforcement badge. The sheriff's department tries its own mind game. It broadcasts a version of the psychological profile of the East Area Rapist drawn up by the state prison psychiatrist. They believe this person to be a paranoid schizophrenic of above average intelligence. He probably lived with a domineering mother. He might have been interested in the criminal justice field in college. But the department embellishes the report with pseudoscience to taunt the man it hunts. I think probably better described as the whole situation would be just a few words that this individual is probably in a homosexual panic, and this panic is caused by his inadequate endowment. In other words, he's raping women because he has a small penis, something detailed by almost every victim. Shelby has his own evaluation of the man they're up against. This guy's whole focus, it's like a career move. It's like he's been to college, and it, his whole plan, his whole life, is how to go out and rape and prowl. I know he's done murders at that point. He's like a, a, I don't know, a coyote out here slithering around. He's cunning. So cunning that investigators have little physical evidence. What they do have are theories. Some stand out. The rapist clearly knows his way around firearms. He uses a variety of handguns and never seems to fumble with any of them. That raises a question. Was the rapist in the military or law enforcement? The idea that the rapist could be a cop is just one of many theories. Detectives are also chasing theories he's a meter reader, a construction worker. But there are signs that point to an insider's knowledge. Because of the precautions that he took to not be identified, how he was able to outwit everybody, knowing what place we're going to be looking for, how much time they would have to get away, what all he needed to do to quiet a victim, to give him time to leave. I mean, this was all things that, you know, it's kind of cop thinking. The theory that the rapist could be a police officer gets enough traction that almost every cop in Sacramento is asked to submit their saliva for testing. The crime lab tests the spit for an uncommon genetic trait they've discovered in the rapist. His blood antigens aren't secreted in his semen or his saliva. That genetic tidbit becomes the department's greatest tool in clearing suspects. They gladly chewed on gauze to be eliminated because we, we really felt that he had a police background. And some police are beginning to see a connection between the ransacker in Visalia and the rapist in Sacramento. Two Visalia detectives show up in Shelby's division. They said, we think he's up here. I thought, well, okay. And when they left that day, I was pretty sure it's the same guy. 
for months, Inspector Shelby works quietly with the homicide detectives from Visalia. They're trying to connect the cases, looking for suspects who have been in both places. It's the kind of slow, methodical police work that would be required to narrow down suspect lists. But the collaboration doesn't last. The Sacramento Union splashes a big story across the front page about the possible connection, and the Sacramento Sheriff's Department explodes. The descriptions do not fit at all. For months, Inspector Shelby works quietly with the homicide detectives from Visalia. They're trying to connect the cases, looking for suspects who have been in both places. Fat thighs, fat calves, and short, chubby fingers. This does not fit the description of the East Area Rapist at all. Worse, he accuses Visalia of interloping. Uh, these types of statements being made by these officers in Visalia are, are unprofessional, uh, irresponsible. The shutdown of any collaboration between Visalia and Sacramento is a major step backward in the case. If one of them had been worth the damn, we would have said, okay, they probably are the same. What connections do we have? And then we, if we kept looking, we would have found the connections some hint of connections later on, but we didn't. Shelby's been with the case since its beginning, but his pursuit is about to be cut short. He's had one too many run-ins with the brass on the fourth floor, and the unsolved case is a career-breaker. Someone's head has got to roll. In July 1977, he goes on vacation, and the next day, he gets a call. Phone call, you've been transferred. <laughs> oh, yippee. That doesn't upset me at all. Outwardly, he's relieved. He spends the next couple of weeks or so sipping highballs, bourbon and water. But in the long run, Shelby can't escape. Decades later, retired detectives and amateur sleuths will drag him back into the hunt. By early 1978, the East Area Rapist has hit 30 times in East Sacramento County. And then he returns to where he started, Rancho Cordova. An Air Force cop and his wife, Brian and Katie Majori, are shot to death. Police believe they encountered the East Area Rapist while out walking their dog. The dog is found alive in the swimming pool where the rapist had thrown him. The couple had been chased down, one at a time, and shot. A young art student nearby hears the shots and steps into his driveway. So I stood out here, and then I can hear a little bit of running, and then somebody hopping over the fence just right down the street. And I could hear him falling in the bushes, and it took him a few seconds to get out of the bushes, but I could tell he was really scrambling. The next attack is 37 miles south in Stockton. He tells the male victim, one move one flinch, I'll blow your head off. After he rapes the woman, he goes to the kitchen, and she hears him sobbing. He returns to Sacramento again, but the last attack, an attempted rape, is kept from the public. The case file includes a note. It reads, At present, Sacramento County Sheriff's Office administrators would like to keep the possible EAR attack quiet so that the press will not overreact. He's far from done. He hits towns 80 miles south, reaching as far as Modesto, and then he heads north and west toward the coast and toward Contra Costa County. 
Contra Costa Sheriff's Lieutenant Larry Crompton is in the crime lab when the sheriff comes in. He says there's some investigators from Sacramento that Crompton has got to hear. They come with a warning about their serial rapist. They felt that he was coming to our area. Crompton is skeptical. Uh, most of us felt, oh, no reason for him to come here. Uh, we just uh, don't have that kind of crimes in this area. Two months later, the county has its first attack. And then a week later, Concord get hit again. The rapist works his way from town to town down Interstate 680 across the bay from San Francisco. Concord, Danville, San Ramon, San Jose. Police say that the East Side rapist once again. Second known attack by the East Area rapist here in the, the attacks. Desto. Two of them, one last. It was about 10 o'clock last night when the rapist kicked in the door. It started right here shortly before 2 a.m. in a pea soup fog. So Crompton struggles to keep up with the blitz of attacks. Not every police department is willing to work with the lieutenant. And something about the way the police treat the rapes concerns Crompton. It was the way that they looked at rape at that time. And they weren't looking at the violence and the threats. If it had been out there that this person was threatening to kill and was threatening to hurt babies and, uh, and the husbands and the wives, I think there would have been a lot more done. I think uh, neighbors would have been more involved and uh, may have saved a few victims. Crompton notices many of the same things that Richard Shelby months earlier picked up on. He starts to understand the rapist's strategy, how he targets his victims beforehand, breaking into their homes and staging them for his return. And that means he can start to anticipate his next attack. When one woman finds a rope hidden beneath her couch cushions, Crompton stakes out her home that night, waiting and listening. He knew that he was prowling, and as he would leave that area, the dogs would stop barking, and uh, dogs would pick it up in another area. And as he sits there, he hears the morning barks begin. Heard dogs barking a few times, and uh, then the dogs would stop barking. The rapist has passed the house by. There will be no attack tonight. In these Bay Area attacks, the rapist begins a new phase. He rapes one woman. Afterward, he turns to the husband, presses a gun to the man's head, and plays with the trigger. He taunts, you don't like it, do you? There's nothing you can do. Crompton consults a psychiatrist who warns that the rapist is on the verge. He wants to kill, and he's going to kill. And I said, why hasn't he? And she said, well, he just hasn't found the justification yet. But he will, and he will kill. And uh, he'll kill you if he has the opportunity. But after nearly 50 rapes, detectives have amazingly little information about the rapist. And what they have is often contradictory. Blonde hair, brown hair. Light eyes, dark eyes. Rough hands, soft hands. A Mexican accent, a German accent, or Asian. Police are desperate for any concrete detail. Leave your body there. In your mind, and just allow your memory to drift with me for a few moments. 
They use hypnotists to coax descriptions from witnesses who might have caught a glimpse of the rapist. Is he a mature-looking, manly type of guy, or is he kind of boyish-looking? They're trying to get enough details to sketch a picture. Is he a good-looking guy? Not much comes from the hypnosis, but there is something buried in the files. It's from the 37th victim, a Davis woman with two children in the house. He tells her, don't move, or I'll blow the fucking kids' heads off. As he rapes her, he sobs. She's afraid of what he might do next. Crying into her pillow, he says, I hate you, Bonnie. It's not the victim's name. What it is, is the best clue yet. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, this is part three of six of Man in the Window. The individual charged with murder and kidnapping in this case, Joseph D'Angelo, has not yet been tried or entered a plea. He and his lawyers declined to comment. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, reach out for help. In the U.S., you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Or you can chat anonymously with a hotline staffer by messaging the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at online.rainn.org. We'd like to express our gratitude to the women willing to tell their stories. And a special thanks to the archive staff at the Center for Sacramento History. Man in the Window was written and reported by me, Paige St. John. Senior producer and editor is Karen Lowe. Associate producer is Casey Georgie. Original music by Allison Leighton Brown. Music coordinator is Marcelino Villalpando. And sound design by Spoke Media. Our editors at the Los Angeles Times are Steve Clow and Shelby Grad. Licensing support from Erica Varela. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.